Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Quick trigger warning. This episode contains descriptions of eating disorders and themes surrounding them. Picture this. It's December 1992. Aladdin is at the top of the box office closely followed by one of our most predatory presidents having a cameo in Home Alone 2. One of our other most predatory presidents, and that's really saying something, had just been voted into office and was preparing to take over from a bland, loser, warmongering president whose garbage son would also be president on the strength of nepotism alone and would later rebrand as the world's most terrible artist. And in December 1992, Kathy, the comic strip character, was on the cover of a magazine. I hear your question, which magazine? No, Cosmo wasn't brave enough. Kathy appeared on the cover of Weight Watchers magazine, wearing green, red, and gold for the season, declaring, happy holidays, meet the real Kathy. And inside this issue, we do. The piece by R.G. Marzulli reads as follows. The cartoon Kathy's weight struggles and battles with the scale are legend, so it was only natural for her to team up with Weight Watchers. Her impish image graces posters and brochures and outwork meeting locations around the country, giving women a chuckle, as well as the reassuring knowledge that they are certainly not alone. Kathy's problem with her weight comes up a lot because the general issue of self-image is a huge part of the strip, Guys White explains. It's central to every woman's existence, even if we don't want to say that it is. We live in a world where we're expected to look a certain way, and where the role models of perfection are astoundingly hard to achieve. In our own way, we all struggle to be what the world expects a woman to be. So this article was more than just a spotlight on the Kathy character, whose popularity had steadily risen during the years of feminist backlash in the 1980s. 
This article was a part of a sponsorship deal. In the early 1990s, Kathy appeared on a number of Weight Watchers posters, pins, and promotions. Also included in these promotions were Mr. Pinkley and Irving, complete with a caption contest to win two tickets on a Caribbean cruise. It was the 90s. You wouldn't understand. That's right, Kathy. I wouldn't understand the 90s because I'm young and full of life. But it's no surprise that the Kathy character would become the literal poster child for a company whose brand relied on regular people, mostly women, who were struggling with their body image. After all, this had been the comic strip's brand for over 15 years by 1992, and it's where we hear the most persistent criticisms of Kathy. Some of her crueler critics asked why she could never successfully lose weight, and others disliked that she was so fixated on it. Some got bored by Kathy's continual frustration with her own reflection in a bathing suit, while others thought that her annoyance with the changing fashion trends was whiny and repetitive. They're lucky I wasn't around to wear those hideous clothes from the Instagram targeted ads. You know what, Kathy, you're right. Those are very upsetting, and I will grant you that. But what was Kathy Geiswhite really saying about diet culture in her work? And does promoting the diet culture surrounding Weight Watchers magazine change the message? Also, who the fuck won that caption contest and was the cruise fun? In today's episode, we're looking at the Kathy body image complex. So let's get music. She burst into the world in 1976. She's at work, she's out on dates, and she don't like politics. From Mama and Irvin to her feminist friends, she's fighting all the stanzas with some chocolate in hand. Kathy, she's fighting back. Too stressed for success, let's cut her some slack. Oh, Kathy, my Kathy, fighting Kathy. She's got a lot going on. The Kathy and Weight Watchers collaboration was short-lived, but touches on something we've come up against quite a bit in this series. If you scan eBay for remaining Kathy merchandise, you'll see more of the stereotype of the character that Guy Sweat created, monetized, and perpetuated. She can't lose weight. She's addicted to shopping. She and her mom have an intense relationship, and on and on. And on the other side of that equation, is the actual material this merchandise was based on, which, as we'll discuss today, contained far more nuance and specific commentary. You might remember from episode two, I asked Kathy Geiswhite about this period of intense merchandising of her strip. In December 92, when this magazine came out, Geiswhite would have been writing the daily strip, raising an infant as a single parent, and running an entire merchandising company. In retrospect, she did have some regrets about this time. Here's what she said. Well, the two big licensing forces were Charles Schultz, who had, of course, a licensing empire, sure. and Jim Davis, who created Garfield, and he had a licensing empire. Mm-hmm. And I saw no reason why a female cartoonist couldn't have a licensing empire, yeah. especially because, you know, we love to shop. Women love to shop. And <laughs> there we go. So that, that was my plan. My plan was to have a, my, my uh, female-based licensing empire. So that did not work out as planned, but I spent decades (laughs) trying to make it work. I was going to say, I mean, it's uh, from from where I'm sitting, it felt like when I was growing up, like Kathy was omnipotent. (laughs) I, I, yeah, it was, it was hard. It got, it it just was a lot. I mean, I, I eventually had to have an office full of people who work, also worked on the licensing, who were, were, did sales and marketing and all of that, and mm-hmm. eventually had to have some people help draw the merchandise. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, boy, there's so much of that I would not have done if I, if I had it to do over again. Because a lot of it, in, in a lot of that, and a lot of, like, the, the pursuing the greed and glory of having my licensing empire mm-hmm. I, in a lot of it I lost like the uh, like the essence of Kathy and the heart and soul of Kathy like my favorite my favorite of all the billion greeting cards we did my very favorite ones still are the ones I drew myself 
but I would need to agree to stuff just to like agree to deals or endorsements mm -hmm. to uh, just to fund the office. And then it was kind of right. got into that cycle. So, I mean, just as a business person, I learned a lot about, I learned a lot by doing, <laughs> you know, by making all the blunders that people make, which is, you know, getting a little bit, getting too big and not, you know, and kind of losing touch with what was good. But at the time, Jamie, mm -hmm. I mean, I was fueled by a woman's possibility to do everything. So at right. the, in the, you know, in the 90s when the licensing was, had gotten really big mm -hmm. and we were just built this, this whole other office just got designed for us to move into and the comic strip was doing great. That's, and I had, I mean, six waking hours, six, six seconds, you know, per day where I wasn't just completely overwhelmed. That's when it occurred to me that I should adopt a baby. So it's pretty safe to say that with this in mind, the Weight Watchers sponsorship was more or less a cash in. And that's absolutely up for criticism on Guy White and her company's part. After all, the comic regularly indicated that diet culture was prohibitively expensive and didn't work. And so for the Kathy character to have actually endorsed a weight loss method as something that works may have been surprising to longtime readers. But American dieting culture far predated the Kathy and Weight Watchers collab. Its legacy is baked right into the colonial dumpster fire that is the American experiment. Let's go back to that Weight Watchers article really quick. In light of Kathy's ongoing weight problems, Guys White has her own personal experience to draw from. At 5'1", she was once more than 50 pounds overweight. She maintains her weight loss through the skills she learned at Weight Watchers. Weight Watchers showed me the whole concept of being able to eat normal food and proper portion sizes. It gave me a foundation for living in a world filled with food. In the strip, Kathy's weight problems stem from her love-hate relationship with food and the temptation to use it for all the wrong purposes. Although she's been a student of the physical fitness slash health movement for years, Kathy will succumb to a cheesecake or a box of donuts. We all like to think we're above those struggles, but most of us begin or end every day of our lives with a little food fight of our own, Geis White says. Kathy is honest about those real personal moments that may not be that cool to talk to people about. So it's with this kind of aggressive merchandising and the brief burst of diet endorsements that a little bit of hypocrisy leaks through, something that Guys White seems to understand pretty clearly today. Why endorse a diet company when your work is about how diets target and fail women? Some would argue hope. The Kathy character has no shortage of that when it comes to modifying her body to meet the standards of the day. But in practice, it's more likely, like Guys White said, that she made that choice to continue to make enough money to keep her merchandising company afloat. So I want to pick apart what is exactly going on with this predatory diet culture. The article mentions things like overweight, proper portion sizes, normal food. And while these phrases are very normalized and intuitive, I was curious what their origin really was. Honestly, I have been dreading writing and recording this episode because if there's one thing I hate talking about, it is about my relationship with food and disordered eating. And in a way, I kind of feel like a hypocrite even like attempting this discussion because so far in my life, no matter how much information I learn, how much empirically true evidence that exists that the way that we are trained to see ourselves is rooted in dangerous bullshit, I'm still nowhere close to deprogramming, shaking, whatevering myself from it. Failing, it's a vortex. So you're saying I'm right. We'll put a pin in that. And the more I think about this frustration, this failure to like my own body and the deeply ingrained belief that women's bodies require this constant maintenance, observation, improvement, the more I start to feel like, and I'm looking at you, a Kathy comic. I mean, it's not that bad. You're right, I'm projecting. So this isn't a full history of diet culture, but I tried to put together a crash course because maybe you need to hear some of this the same way that I did. 
The Kathy character's tendency to get frustrated with her body and the expectations being forced on it take up as much real estate in the history of the comic as her relationship and workplace problems, if not more. It's one of the themes that's most popularly associated and criticized about her. For many people, the first association of a Kathy comic is Kathy looking in the mirror at a department store because she doesn't think she looks right. She thinks that she's fat and feels that to be fat is to be bad because the fashion trend of the moment, whether it's 1976 when the comic started or 2010 when it ended, catered to rail thin women and not actual bodies. Here's one of my favorites on this subject from the late 1990s. Kathy is reading a magazine while working out on her home elliptical machine in sweatpants. In the past 10 years, the amount of money spent on diet programs has doubled to 35 billion a year. In the exact same 10 year period, adult Americans have gained an average of eight pounds each. Kathy looks stressed and gets off the elliptical. The more money we spend on dieting, the more weight we gain. The more weight we gain, the more money we spend on dieting. In the final panel, Kathy lies flat on her couch with a magazine covering her face. She is defeated. When they speak of the millennium, they're referring to the future span of our waistline. And Kathy is using authentic statistics of the day for American dieters here. While people loved to make fun of the character for failing, strips like this reveal that the system was rigged to begin with. So we've got to take a look at that system with a brief, admittedly incomplete history of how diet culture has affected American women, and not just the middle-class working women that Kathy tends to comment on. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. TIKA.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today 
in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. Again, this is a crash course, so I quickly would like to shout out the three sources I used most often in putting this episode together. Those were Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings, This is Big by Marissa Metzer, and the amazing Maintenance Phase podcast from Audrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. And it is with their sage guidance that I bring you back to Ancient Greece. Seriously? Kathy, I know you read like every book on personal health from the 1970s to the 2000s, but you need to like give me a chance. Let the process work, okay? Ancient Grace. Goodbye. She's not wrong, but bear with me for a second because the way we look at women's bodies goes way back. Throughout history, a full female figure has been the feminine ideal. But as time goes on, that ideal, which is almost always formed by white men, becomes slimmer and slimmer. But we're starting in ancient Greece because that is where the classical Venus figure comes from. Maybe you can picture the statue that I'm talking about already. She's nude, she's covering one nipple and her pubic area. She doesn't have a 20th century supermodel body. She has a body. She has meat on her arms and her legs and her stomach. The statue, which was originally made in the first century BC, came to prominence in the modern sense in the 1600s, when it was displayed at the Via Medici in Rome, a property that was run by the Grand Duke of Tuscany. And over time, this statue became an icon, and the physical figure of Venus was considered to be the ideal feminine form in Western European culture, around a time where Western Europe was aggressively colonizing around the world. This meant, among other things, that this image of Venus was perpetuated across the globe very quickly, and women from around the world with different skin tones, builds, ages, were compared against her, this fictional statue. The book Fearing the Black Body does an excellent job of unpacking how these prominent standards of beauty were almost always created and standardized like this. They were made up by white men, They were enforced on white women to display white women as the peak of femininity and to other non-white women. I'm going to let this book's incredible research and attention to detail kind of guide us through this period in history up until the second wave of feminism where Kathy's story begins. Author Sabrina Strings unpacks the Venus de' Medici's legacy and its role in establishing the ideal female form in fearing the black body. She says this, Venetian voluptuousness was united by the notion that beauty was found in proportionality and that fleshiness was pleasing to the eye. Strings also describes the absence of non-white women in popular European art during this time, with a few exceptions. One of these exceptions was a 17th century sculpture, and 17th century means that it's from the 1600s. That has never not been confusing to me, so if you knew that, you're smarter than me. If you didn't, there you go a 17th century sculpture called the African Venus, whose sculptor has been disputed over the years but is currently thought to be a Dutch guy named Johan Gregor van der Schart. Van der Schart. Van der Schart. It's very serious. He's a serious Latin artist and his last name is van der Schart. The statue looks very similar to the Venus de' Medici, but instead depicts a black woman's body. And while the Venus de' Medici, a white woman, is seen looking away from her own body demurely, the African Venus holds a hand mirror where she views her own image. And this is just one example of what I'd really like to stress here, and that is that the way we view bodies, particularly women's bodies, is very closely tied to imperialism from every angle. To say that it's just patriarchy is overly simplistic, because there's a lot of factors at play here. There are differences in how women's bodies are treated and viewed by race, by country of origin, by time period, by build, and by trends of the day. Basically, all of these attitudes were shaped and enforced by men of European and later American origin. Strings says this of the African Venus's legacy. 
in a prelude to ideas about Africans that would be developed over the next several centuries, the African Venus is lacking in shame. Whereas the Europeanized Venus Pudica covers her pubis and breasts, the African Venus is mesmerized by her own beauty as she gazes wistfully at her own reflection. At this time, women's bodies were viewed as property in many ways. This could be through marriage or, as was the case for many African women, actual enslavement by white people. And these body standards rarely, if ever, have anything to do with health and can sometimes be directly harmful to health. At certain points in history, women with fuller figures would be an indication that their husbands could afford rich foods, and at other times, more slender women, that her husband restricted the intake of food and drink in order to bring his family closer to God. This constant recalibration and optimization of white women's bodies and the othering of non-white women's bodies is a constant trend as was the European male tendency to only call black and brown women beautiful when they had features that resembled white European women. Women with bigger figures were celebrated in a way that directly opposed with body standards imposed on men. Fatness in men was thought to represent a lack of self-control, and thinness, as Sabrina Strings puts it, represented, quote, bodily proof of rationality and intelligence, unquote. Okay, we're going to fast forward a bit to a late Renaissance Flemish artist named Peter Paul Rubens, who became very famous for painting nudes of curvy white ladies, lining up with the voluptuous aesthetic popular at the time. To this day, you still might hear women referred to as Rubenesque by a creepy uncle or a bad writer. Rubens himself was extremely fixated on how he felt women should look, to the extent that he wrote a long treatise on what he considered to constitute constitute beauty and ideal proportionality. He included a whole chapter on looks that he thought were specifically hot. Nothing weird going on here. Rubens says this. The body must not be too thin or too skinny, nor too large or too fat, but with a moderate embodiment following the model of the antique statues. The hip or the tops of the thighs and the thighs themselves should be large and ample. The buttocks should be round and fleshy. The knees should be fleshy and round. As if anyone asked. That's what I'm saying. What the fuck? So Rubens' paintings ordinarily featured nude white women, and he would sometimes feature black women in the portrait as a servant or slave wearing clothing, as he did in paintings like Bathsheba and Venus in front of the mirror. This, regretfully, would have lined up with Rubens's life. He was living in Antwerp, Belgium, a hub of imperialism and slave trade during that time. In paintings like these, black women were explicitly othered and portrayed as inferior, while white women were told, by Rubens' images, how to look in order to be valuable to society. Sabrina Strings puts it like this. In other words, whiteness stood not just for social supremacy, but general superiority. This body standard held pretty firmly for some time, but things began to shift by the late 1700s and into the 1800s. And it was during this time that European colonists continued at an increasing rate to wreak havoc and force white supremacy on a large portion of the planet. There are very few countries that have gone untouched by the imperialism of this era. And in the case of many cultures, including indigenous Americans, and a steep increase in the forced enslavement of African people, entire cultures were massacred and attempted to be erased entirely in favor of European ideals and culture. And it was during this time that the bodies of non-white women were further othered and at times explicitly othered by being linked with fatness. A popular example of this lies in the story of Sarah Bartman, a South African Khoikhoi woman who became known by the cruel nickname of the Hottentot Venus. While living in Cape Town, South Africa, Bartman was brought to the UK by a Scottish military surgeon to display her body as an exhibit. But the more accurate term based on how her image and body was monetized is more like a circus. Many details of Bartman's life are unknown, and it's not clear whether she went to the UK in 1810 voluntarily or not. What is known, she was toured across Europe because her body looked different than European women, and she was marketed with intense, 
grotesque fixation put on her buttocks. White lookers-on could pay to poke and prod at her, and Bartman was later brought to France and effectively enslaved while being put on display before she died at 40 of unknown causes. Many have said smallpox. There is a lot more to discuss here about Sarah Bartman's life and much that isn't known about it. Her legacy and her image, which was generally illustrated, exaggerated, and disseminated by Europeans, is historically connected to how black women's bodies are othered. And this is something that Sabrina Strings cites to demonstrate that as European beauty standards shifted to encourage white women to become thinner, non-white women were othered in order to show white women how not to be. Strings says this. Whether fact or fiction, the purported size of her bottom, in tandem with her presumed general rotundity, placed Sarah beyond the pale of fair-skinned European norms of beauty. Racial theories had linked fatness to blackness in the European imagination, and they had also linked thinness to whiteness. I'll be linking to more about Sarah Bartman's life in the episode description. As the 1800s continued, body standards began to shift. Europeans across gender lines were encouraged to eat and drink less to demonstrate their class, with a lot of pop culture at the time reinforcing that fatness was linked with African women specifically. During a time where race science became a prominent and deeply harmful component of the European imperialist equation. Here, according to Strings, is how it worked. English men were seen as arbiters of taste, or those capable of creating the guidelines for judging beauty. English women were treated as its representatives. As the 1800s wore on, thin white women gradually became a symbol of not just white supremacy, but of divine morality and closeness to God. And it's with this mentality taking hold across the imperial world that early diet culture began to rear its head. The idea of food and drink restriction to force thinness was also originally tied to Christianity. And it was this that motivated an early unwitting diet guru named George Chain. Chain was a Scottish-born physician whose invention of a diet of milk, seeds, and fruits not just helped him lose weight, but became a lucrative diet among aristocratic women of the day. This launched him into a prominent and comfortable life, even though he was, at the time, deeply annoyed that women seemed to be more drawn to his work than men. Boo-hoo. Here's a short history of diets in the 1800s, all invented by European men. I know I'm being overly cautious here, but I'm not endorsing these. Please don't do these. Let's get some music going. The Avoiding Swamps Diet which claimed that living near a swamp caused obesity. Someone alert Shrek and Donkey to this one. What are you doing in my swamp? There was the Fletcherism diet, which instructed that people chew food until it turned to liquid to fool the body into thinking it was full. There was the vinegar and water diet, as pushed by Lord Byron, the tapeworm diet, which... Uh, Yep, and the first popularized low-carb diet by a British undertaker named William Banting. He published one of the first ever popular diet books called A Letter on Corpulence. Let's cut the music. Pushers of fad diets have long targeted women specifically and are often exposed to be total scammers, but they're scammers with a very consistent goal, to make money and gain notoriety by encouraging women to alter their habits and bodies under the assumption that it will make them healthier and more desirable by society. Some of these diets simply supplemented less healthy foods with more healthy foods, while others relied on dangerous gimmicks or modified disordered eating. Diet pills also started cropping up in the late 1800s, which both did not work and caused severe damage to users' bodies. Another very effective tool for enforcing these body standards goes back to where we started in this episode, at mass-distributed magazines primarily directed at white girls and women. Sabrina Strings credits a magazine called Goaty's Ladybook as an early pusher of body norms in mass media. It was published from 1830 to 1878 in Philadelphia and was edited by a woman for 40 years of its run, a writer named Sarah Joseph Hale. 
But as people with big old brains like you and me know, you and I, the, the smartest people to ever live, a woman's involvement in something does not mean that that something is wholly pro-women. Because while Sarah Joseph Hale did do some cool stuff, including spotlighting women in the workforce as early as the 1850s and hired first wave feminist Sarah Jane Lippincott as an assistant editor before she was fired by Godey for denouncing slavery in the magazine. But Sarah Joseph Hale, as Sabrina Strings tells us in Fearing the Black Body, wanted to push the narrative of women as more than housewives by reinforcing temperance, morality, and food restriction. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing hosting and making memories with family and friends and you can resell on picasso's marketplace anytime historically for a 10 percent gain with picasso you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time visit picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings that's p-a-c-a-s-o.com Godey's Ladybook, as many modern magazines still do today, pushed the idea of optimizing one's body according to the morality of the day. And the day of Godey's Ladybook stated that American beauty was white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant. Wasp city, baby. Some real Charlottes walking around. All this to say that many white women who were tastemakers, even those who claimed to be feminists, were generally complicit in this mindset. An example is a writer named Lee Hunt, who once published a piece in Godey's called Chapter on Female Features. Sabrina Strings describes the piece like this. 
Hunt makes it clear that excessive eating leads to a figure that would be undesirable for cultivated white women. With more than a hint of sarcasm, Hunt acknowledges that there are fashions and beauty as well as dress. With this, she is suggesting that in other parts of the world, different standards of beauty apply. Godey's Lady Book perpetuated and, over time, adjusted what the concept of American beauty was. Originally, it excluded most white immigrant women as well, at different times excluding Irish women, Italian women, Polish women, Catholic women, and Jewish women by associating them with fatness. Over time, however, most other white women were welcomed into the fold, while black, brown, indigenous, and any fat women remained firmly excluded from what the term American beauty meant. What it boiled down to was this image of delicate white supremacy, with the white woman representing the eventual reproduction of the race. Strings says that it was the, quote, multiple and colliding factors of Protestant asceticism, scientific racism, and the proto-science of health and beauty, unquote. After Godey's Lady Book folded, bye-bye, other magazines with more familiar names took up the mantle. How about Harper's Bazaar? It began in 1867 in New York by publishing magnates the Harper Brothers, who marketed the magazine to middle and upper-class white women. And again, a woman served as the editor-in-chief for its formative years. Mary Louise Booth edited the magazine from its beginning and for the next 16 years, and frequently included columns about women's dietary habits. There was a column called for the ugly girls that was about falling short of feminine expectations. And unlike Godey's Lady Book, Harper's Bazaar was unequivocally a fashion magazine. Fashion is a complicated and fascinating topic that we'll get to a bit later in the episode, and it's been used both really powerfully for self and cultural expression, as well as taken advantage of to enforce the standards of patriarchy and imperialism. Harper's Bazaar, from the beginning, existed at this very tricky intersection. Sabrina Strings says this of the magazine. Harper's reflected a kindred preoccupation with the right models of beauty, which were based on one's race and class status. For this reason, the magazine denounced the fatness of the savage races and exalted the more streamlined aesthetic of the Germans. This sentiment was to be found in an 1879 article titled The Fixed Facts of Beauty. In it, the author informs readers that it is not to say that the laws of beauty are not fixed, that because the Turks sees beauty are not fixed, that because the Turks sees beauty only in the obese and certain of the savages and the deformed, that therefore the laws of beauty are arbitrary. It was in the late 1800s that Cosmo began publishing with a pretty similar mission to Harper's. It featured articles by writers like Elizabeth Bisland, who was actually a pretty fascinating character. She engaged in a race around the world against pioneer investigative reporter Nellie Bly, but Bisland also wrote on the concept of American beauty, talking about thinness as a type of exceptionalism. Here's how Sabrina Strings characterizes her work. It is a type of beauty possible only in the United States, where the best of all races, those from Northern and Western Europe, had arrived as immigrants. These desirable immigrants had mixed and mingled to produce progeny who were tall, thin, and of unsurpassed beauty. And while this mindset is aggressively bigoted, this wouldn't have been surprising rhetoric for the time by a long shot. In the early 1900s, eugenic race science was becoming increasingly popular in the United States as a discriminatory tool. In 1910, a New England Puritan fancy guy named Charles Davenport, okay, founded the Eugenics Records Office in New York, further pushing the idea that people of color, as well as to quote Charles Davenport, quote, Poles, Irish, and Italians, unquote, were lesser than. Eugenics attempted to accomplish this by drawing attention to slight physical differences often imagined to justify its claims of superiority. Eugenics are still weaponized to this day. By the time these magazines were popular, first wave feminism was in full swing in the United States. And as we investigated in episode three of this podcast, all the exclusionary white middle and upper class dominated issues that came with the time period led to women being granted the vote in the U.S. in 1920. 
And by that time, the body standards in the United States had firmly changed. While some areas of the American South had previously celebrated fuller women's figures than in the North, mass media had more or less perpetuated the slender white ideal, to the point where articles of the time said explicitly that the Venus de' Medici, once the beauty standard, would now be considered too big to be beautiful by the American standards. In the early 1900s, Harper's, Cosmo, and advertising at large were overwhelmed with the image of the Gibson Girl, which were illustrations of the white lady ideal drawn by, you won't be shocked, some guy, Charles Dana Gibson. While the Gibson Girls varied in their fashions, all Gibson Girls were tall and descended from the British, forming this image of white American exceptionalism. Nowadays, the Gibson girl is more commonly associated with American flappers, what women looked like around the time of an increased focus on women's rights, but that wasn't necessarily their intent. Gibson himself was quick to say that his illustrations, while iconic, were meant to calcify the concept of American beauty and to exclude women who did not fit its standard. He once wrote this. What Zhang Will calls the melting pot of the races has resulted in a certain character. They are beyond question the loveliest of all their sex. Evolution has selected the best things for preservation. Why should women not be beautiful increasingly? Why should it not be the fittest in form and features, as well as mind and muscle which survives? And where should that fittest be in evidence most strikingly? In the United States, of course, where natural selection has been going on as elsewhere, there has been a great variety to choose from. The eventual American woman will be even more beautiful than the woman of today. Her claims to that distinction will result from a fine combination of the best points of all those many races which have helped to make our population. Other American men took a different tack on women's bodies, which it's incredible to hear so many different perspectives on something that is none of their business. The perspective I'm talking about is that of John Harvey Kellogg, who, yes, ultimately founded that breakfast cereal empire, but began as a deeply religious and deeply racist eugenicist who feared that American women had become so thin that they were no longer adequately fertile to continue the white American race. Not all women have uteruses, Mr. Kellogg, not that you give a shit. He's dead, I don't know what I'm doing. At the time, John Harvey Kellogg was very clear on his views. He said, quote, the only hope for the race is in the future of its girls, unquote. He rejected the physical frame of Gibson girls and flappers and encouraged women to eat well, Kellogg cereal, to become, as he told it, hardier and more fertile. There's an entire book on the full picture by Dr. Howard Markle called The Kellogg's, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek, that I'll link in the description. It is a bizarre and disturbing legacy. So Tony the Tiger. Part of a eugenicist legacy. I don't make the facts, but it's my sacred duty to report them. Snap, crackle, and pop, you're on notice. The Raisin brand's son? Sicko, get him out of there. And what good would these exceptionalist ideals in magazines and advertising be without rules and products with which to attain the look? Beginning in 1913, scales for the home became consumer products so that people could monitor their bodies from the comfort of their own bathroom. The concept of calories became standard with a 1918 bestseller called Diet and Health with Key to the Calories by Lulu Hunt Peters. Watch your weight, the cover warned, and in its pages, Peters described fatness as a, quote, disease, unquote. The concept of body mass index came into play with something called ideal weight tables, most popularly with tables circulated by MetLife Insurance. The data these tables used were entirely based off of white and disproportionately male bodies and were not designed with mind towards actual bodily health, but instead to be used by insurance companies in order to assess risk on who qualifies for life insurance. Come on. The BMI as we know it now came to prominence in the U.S. in 1972, just four years before the Kathy Strip debuted in American newspapers. While the BMI was just a modification of these tables, which completely excluded non-white people and many women, it was eventually adopted by the NIH, or National Institute of Health. Previously, the NIH had utilized those MetLife life insurance tables. 
The inherent racism of the body mass index is well documented in spite of its popularity to this day. I will link some resources in the description. And it's here in the 1970s where our girl Kathy re-enters the picture. Now that you're up to speed on how we arrived at the diet culture that the Kathy comic was staring down the barrel of when the comic started, we're going to pick up there in part two of this episode later in the week. Bye! ACCast is an iHeartRadio production. It is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. Sophie Lichterman is the world's greatest producer. Isaac Taylor is the world's greatest editor. Zoe Blade writes the world's best music. And Brandon Dickert wrote the world's best theme song. In today's episode, you heard the vocal talents of Shireen Lani Yunus, Maggie Cannon, Isaac Taylor, and the icon herself, Jackie Michelle Johnson as Kathy. We will see you Wednesday. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.